Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you all for attending the Trust and Estate Section's year-end review. My name is Eric Kane. I'm an attorney at Goulston and & Stores, and I co-chair the Estate Planning Committee with Kerry Reeves, who's an attorney at Wilmington Trust here in Boston. Uh, I just want to start by thanking uh, both the members and the chairs of the three committees presenting here today. Uh, everyone's committed a lot of time and effort to today's program. Uh, so let me introduce today's uh, speakers. We have uh, Maggie Lopez and Kirsa Johnson will be presenting from our new developments committee. Maggie is with Arendt Fox Schiff and Kirsa is with Hemingway and Barnes. Uh, Heather Harris will be presenting from our tax law committee. Heather is with Dave Pitney. And finally, Joshua Caswell will be presenting from our public policy committee. Josh is with Choate Hall and Stewart. Um, please don't hesitate to ask questions uh, throughout the presentations, and we can pause at the end of each committee presentation uh, if there's questions for uh, any particular speakers. Uh, we should also have some time at the end uh, for questions as well. So with that, I will hand things over to Maggie and Kirsa, who will begin the program with new developments. Thanks again, everyone. Uh, I hope everybody enjoys the program. Thanks, Eric. I'm gonna go ahead and start. Um, as Eric said, my name is Maggie. I am a private client trust and estates, estates associate at Aaron Fox Schiff. I'm the co-chair of the new developments committee along with Kirsa Johnson. I'll be taking you through the first set of cases and our materials. Uh, and the first one up is in the matter of Leo Kahn revocable trust. So oh, here upon the settler's death, the Leo Kahn revocable trust became irrevocable and split into two subtrusts the spousal share and the donor's family share. Their surviving spouse was the beneficiary of both trusts. The trustees of the said subtrusts were the surviving spouse, the settler's son, who was not the son of the surviving spouse, and Theo. After nine years, a surviving spouse filed a petition to remove the settler's son and Theo as co-trustees of the spousal share under the MUTC's provision for removal of a trustee, which I will refer to as the statute. Under the statute, the court may remove a trustee if removal is requested by all the qualified beneficiaries and is not inconsistent with the material purpose of the trust and a suitable co-trustee or successor trustee is available. The trust instrument provided that a trustee may be removed for cause. The trust also provides for a second removal provision that is effective upon the death of the surviving spouse, which allows removal with or without cause. The settler's son moved to dismiss the petition for his uh, removal for failure to sta state a claim. His argument was because there was a distinction in the trust between for cause and with or without cause, he could not be removed for no cause during the surviving spouse's lifetime. The trial court agreed and dismissed the petition. The surviving spouse then appealed the decision. The other trustee, Theo, died while the surviving spouse's petition was pending. Section 105B of the MUTC states that the trust provisions prevail over the MUTC with certain exceptions relating to trust modification. The court examined if the trust actually precludes the statute. The settler's son took the stance that statutory removal is a without cause removal and the trust prohibits his removal without cause during the surviving spouse's lifetime. The court acknowledges here that while this is not without force, there's ambiguity because neither the statute nor the trust define without cause. 
Although the statute lists requirements for removal, the court does not view that fact alone as requiring a statutory removal must be a removal with cause. The court ultimately decides that it is unclear whether the statute provides for a with cause removal. Therefore, there was an error in dismissing the surviving spouse's claim and the case was remanded for further proceedings. Moving on to the next case, Ambrecht v. Stone. In 2004, the O'Connell Family Irrevocable Trust was created by the settlers, Vincent, and I'm going to butcher this name, Dioclesiana, for the benefit of their adult daughter, Melanie, who has Down syndrome. At her death, the trust would be distributed in equal shares to Melanie's uncles, Desio, Edward, Orlando, and Dasiano. Dasiano served as trustee of the trust until his death in 2014. Edward assumed position as successor trustee thereafter. In 2013, before his death, Dasiano planned to make a distribution to himself and his brothers, despite the fact that Melanie was still alive. He was advised by counsel that such that such a distribution was impermissible. Dasiano wired, regardless of that advice, Dasiano wired $480,000 of the trust assets to his daughter, Betty, and her husband, Vincent. Betty had been taking care of Melanie since 2009. And at this point in time, Betty wires this money to a bank account um, that is titled the Melanie O'Connell Supplemental Care Trust, which I'll refer to as the Texas Trust moving forward. And in this trust, Betty uh, Betty created this trust for Melanie's benefit, and it's separate from the original trust. The provisions reflected the former trust, including distributions to the uncles after Melanie's death. Dasiano then files a conversion action in Superior Court against Betty to compel her to return the funds, and Betty in turn files an equity action with the probate court claiming breach of fiduciary duty, claims... Um, Oh, sorry, lost my spot here. Claims for constructive conversion. Uh, yeah, constructive conversion, reformation of trust, and declaratory judgment. The Superior Court action was stayed pending the outcome in probate court. The probate court held that Dasiano had breached his fiduciary duties in attempting to transfer funds prior to Melanie's death. Secondly, that Dasiano did not breach his fiduciary duties by filing a conversion action in Superior Court. Third, Dostiano and Edward, a successor um, trustee, were not required to repay the trust for attorney's fees. And fourth, the original trust would terminate and all assets would be transferred to the Texas Trust. After the order was entered, Betty filed a motion to prohibit Edward from paying any remaining legal fees from the trust. The judge directed Edward to transfer all of the remaining trust assets into the Texas trust and emphasized that Edward had no further ability to handle any trust funds nor pay himself any more fees out of those funds. Five months went by and Edward had not transferred the funds into the Texas trust. Edward filed a motion to stay um, the judgment pending a motion to, for permission to pay legal fees from the trust. Betty responded with a complaint for contempt. The second probate court judge denied Edward's motion and found him guilty of contempt for failing to transfer the funds and terminate the trust. The trial judge, trial judges in general have a wide discretion when determining the award of legal fees. This combined with the delay in Edward's um, 
filing of a motion to stay resulted in the appeals court denying his motion to stay and denying his motion for the payment of legal fees. Further, the appeals court determined that Edward was in contempt since the order was clear and Edward disobeyed that order. Lastly, the appeals court declined to award appellate legal fees to Betty. Okay. And the next case is Caputo v. Moulton. Marjorie, the settlor, created a discretionary trust for her five nieces and nephews and their descendants. Marjorie named her financial planner, Louis Caputo, as the initial trustee and his son, Michael, as the successor trustee. Marjorie died in 2015, and within a few years after her death, the trust beneficiaries sought to remove Lewis as the trustee. The trust provided that a majority of the then permissible distributees could remove any trustee for reasonable cause, which was broadly defined. The trust also empowered a majority of the then permissible distributees over the age of 35 to remove any trustee for no cause, but no more than one removal within a two-year period. The trust further provides that any beneficiary who unsuccessfully sought the removal of a trustee would be thereafter deemed to have predeceased the execution of the trust without surviving issue. In 2019, the five nieces and nephews, but none of their children and grandchildren, purported to remove the trustee for reasonable cause and also for removal of the successor trustee for no cause. Lewis and Michael brought an action for declaratory judgment. In 2020, the nieces and nephews and their children and grandchildren successfully removed Lewis and Michael. An appeal on this decision followed. For the first time on appeal, the beneficiaries argued Lewis and Michael lacked standing to bring the declaratory judgment action. The appeals court agreed that Michael, as successor trustee, lacked standing to bring the declaratory judgment action since he had never stepped into the role as trustee. However, Lewis did have standing based on his interest in knowing whether he remained a trustee after the attempted removal in 2019, whether the trust property remained in trust or instead reverted to the settler's estate, and whether he was entitled to reimbursement of legal fees and expenses. The appeals court agreed with the beneficiaries' uh, questions. Besides the trustee's entitlement for reimbursement of fees, had been rendered moot given the removal petition in 2020 was successful. As to whether the beneficiaries who brought the removal action forfeited their inheritance was also moot given that Marjorie's brother, the sole beneficiary of the settler's estate, asserted that any trust property he received, he would distribute to the named beneficiaries outright. Strangely, the court considered the question of whether the beneficiaries received the trust property outright versus in trust um, as one of academic interest only. Lastly, the appeals court reversed the trial court decision that held the trustee was entitled to reimbursement of legal fees. The appeals court remanded for determination as to whether the fees were reasonably incurred. As you can see, the last few months, there have been some interesting cases about trustee removal and when and how they can be removed. Moving on to the fourth case, matter of estate of urban. This has very interesting facts. <laughs> John Urban, the decedent, and Michelle Finnegan established a close relationship when Urban lived in Florida part of the year where he would live in Michelle's parents' guest house. In 2013, Urban created a will with attorney Daniel Singleton, which I'll refer to as attorney Singleton, in Massachusetts. 
The 2013 will provided for 16 beneficiaries, which included Finnegan and her parents as well, um, and the establishment of a scholarship fund. Urban was later diagnosed with dementia in 2014. Attorney Singleton and Urban discussed revisions to his current will, and a new one was drafted in 2014. The 2014 will was very similar to the 2013 will, except for the increasing of various bequests, but decreasing Finnegan's bequests. Two months later, Urban executed a power of attorney appointing his friend, Dr. Jeff Emerson, who I'll refer to as Dr. Emerson, as attorney in fact. In 2015, Urban created a third will, revising various bequests, including increasing his bequest to Dr. Emerson and others. In 2016, Dr. Emerson spoke with attorney Singleton and stated that Urban wanted to increase his one bequest to Middlebury College. Hmm. The new will was drafted without speaking to Urban, but on um, but in May of 2016, Urban executed a new will, which I'll refer to as the 2016 will. Multiple people claim that Urban that day was focused and clear-headed. Prior to the execution of the 2016 will, in April of 2014, Finnegan called her own attorney to complain about Urban's friends, and she feared that they were taking advantage of him. Her attorney offered to provide her with a legal document which I'll refer to as the agreement that would allow her to make decisions on Urban's behalf and be reimbursed for her time and attention. Finnegan brought the agreement to Urban while visiting him at his nursing home in Massachusetts. The agreement acknowledged that Finnegan had provided Urban with care over the last 20 years while he had been living in Florida and that Urban had not paid her for her services. The agreement provided that Finnegan would be the exclusive beneficiary and nominated personal representative of Urban's estate. Additionally, the agreement stated Urban's house would be transferred to Finnegan. Finnegan presented Urban with the agreement, but it is unclear if at the time he looked at it, if he read it or understood it. The agreement was signed by Urban in the presence of two witnesses, one being Finnegan's father. Urban stated during the signing of the agreement that he trusted Finnegan would take care of everything. Finnegan left Massachusetts shortly thereafter. In 2019, Urban died from Alzheimer's dementia. Attorney Singleton filed a probate petition to allow the 2016 will and to be appointed personal representative. Finnegan filed an objection and a notice of claim for $5 million against Urban's estate. Shortly thereafter, Finnegan filed her own probate petition to probate the agreement. 11 of the uh, 11 of the beneficiaries from the 2016 will, including the scholarship fund, objected to Finnegan's petition in September 2019. The scholarship fund filed a motion for summary judgment regarding both the 2016 will and the agreement. The probate court judge allowed the motions for summary judgment in February of 2021, finding that there was no genuine issue of material fact and that agreement was the product of undue influence. The probate court judge found that Urban possessed testamentary capacity to execute the 2016 will and that it was not a product of undue influence. Attorney Singleton was appointed personal representative of Urban's estate and the 2016 will was admitted to probate. Finnegan appealed. Plymouth County Probate and Family Court granted summary judgment to the beneficiaries on their claim. And so the appeals court affirmed the probate court's holding. The appeals court first examines whether there was undue influence in the creation of the 2016 will. 
In cases where a fiduciary benefits in the transaction, the fiduciary has the burden of proving the transaction did not violate his or her obligations if he or she partook in such transaction. The burden shifting applies not only to those who draft the document itself, but those serving under a, a power of, of attorney as well. Usually the burden is met if the fiduciary can show the principal made the disposition with the advice of independent legal counsel, as long as no intrusion into that attorney-client relationship occurred. In this situation, Dr. Emerson did not play a role in drafting the 2016 will, and he was never present at the signings. The appeals court found that because Urban had attorney Singleton as legal counsel, that Dr. Emerson took no substantial part in the transaction or drafting of the 2016 will, and no intrusion of that relationship between Urban and attorney Singleton occurred, there was no evidence of undue influence. The appeals court next examines whether Urban had testamentary capacity when signing the 2016 will. The question to ask here is whether the testator signing the will was of sound mind at the time of signing the instrument. The appeals court finds that there is no genuine issue of material fact as to whether Urban had testamentary capacity when he signed the 2016 will, given that there was no direct evidence of the contrary. Additionally, Urban's medical records do not indicate his dementia was so progressive as to lead to a different determination. With respect to the signing of the 2016 will, Finnegan claims that Urban never signed it to begin with, um, even though it was notarized by attorney Singleton, adequately witnessed, and both witnesses attest to the fact that Urban signed the instrument. The appeals court finds there's no genuine issue of material fact with respect to the Urban, um, Urban signing the 2016 will. The next issue examined is whether the agreement was the result of undue influence. A non-fiduciary party who challenges a will has the burden of proving by a preponderance of the evidence that fraud or undue influence occurred. The summary judgment record shows that there was no genuine issue of material fact with respect to whether the agreement constituted an unnatural disposition. Finnegan only disputes this point. Urban executed multiple wills between the years of 2013 and 2016. In these wills, he provided for multiple beneficiaries and left the residue to a scholarship fund. The agreement completely contradicts this as Finnegan was a sole residuary beneficiary. There is evidence that Urban was proud of the idea of establishing his scholarship fund and providing for the beneficiaries like Middlebury College. In contrast, Finnegan had only seen Urban once or twice before having him sign the agreement. Simply because Finnegan was frustrated by Urban not giving her money does not overrule his choices as a testator. The appeals court affirms the findings that the agreement provided for an unnatural disposition. Lastly, the appeals court further affirms a separate matter, the motion to strike the deposition of a licensed social worker since the deposition occurred without providing notice to opposing counsel. And so there was complete absence of objections, stipulations, and cross-examination. Okay, I will pass it off to Kirsa, who will um, continue with the case summaries. Thanks very much, Maggie. Um, I, I am Kirsa Johnson. I'm an associate at Hemingway and Barnes and a co-chair with Maggie of the New Developments Committee. Um, so I'll, I'll discuss the last three cases that we have in our materials. The first one here is uh, Dion versus Flynn. This is a case from February of this year. So Francis and Hugh Flynn divorced in 2017 after a long marriage. In the divorce proceedings, the marital home was awarded to Hugh. 
2016, prior to the divorce, he executed a will making no provisions for Francis and leaving his entire estate to two of his daughters, Kathleen and Colleen. He also executed the Flynn Family 2016 Trust, naming himself and Kathleen as the trustees. He then transferred his house, the house that was later awarded to him, to that trust. <clears throat> In 2017, the trustees of the, the 2016 Trust deeded the house to Kathleen and Colleen, who in turn deeded it to Hugh. So essentially the house went into the trust and then back up to Hugh. In 2018, Francis and Hugh, after their divorce, resumed living together in the marital home. In February of 2020, he was diagnosed with cancer. He and Francis remarried later that month and he died in early March. The marital home was transferred to Francis following probate court litigation. Kathleen sued Francis, arguing first, that Francis was not entitled to her marital share of Hughes' estate, and second, that Francis was liable for undue influence, fraud, and tortious interference with an expectancy. As to the marital share question, the court stated that a spouse in a valid marriage is entitled to the statutory share of the estate, and there's no authority to the contrary. <clears throat> Furthermore, since the probate court has exclusive jurisdiction over actions to contest the validity of a marriage, the superior court was correct in dismissing that claim since it had been addressed by the probate court. As to the other claims of fraud, undue influence, and tortious interference, while Kathleen didn't challenge the validity of the remarriage of Francis and Hugh, uh, her claims all were rooted in the validity of the marriage. Only parties to a marriage can institute an action to annul it, and issues related to capacity to marry must be raised during the lifetime of the parties who are married. Since that didn't happen, and since Kathleen was not a party to, to the marriage, those claims were dismissed. <clears throat> Finally, the appeals court noted that the probate proceedings constituted constituted a prior action and therefore dismissal of, of the claims was proper. Um, the next case is Birkenfeld versus Birkenfeld, an April case from this year related to fraud and unjust enrichment and tortious interference. Uh, so several years prior to his death in 2007, Ronald Birkenfeld created an estate in 2007, Ronald Birkenfeld created an estate plan with a pour over will and a revocable trust with a standard AB trust structure. His wife, Pamela, was a sole beneficiary of the trust during her life, receiving all income and discretionary distributions of principal from the A trust and discretionary distributions of both income and principal from the B trust. Pamela had a power of appointment over the remaining trust property at her death, allowing her to appoint the property among Ronald's children. <clears throat> In December of 2020, Bradley Birkenfeld, Ronald's son, filed suit against his stepmother, Pamela, claiming fraud and unjust enrichment following the death of his father. Bradley's complaint stemmed from a 2012 gift he had made to Ronald and Pamela, which he believed was to be used to pay off their mortgage. Pamela had mentioned that they needed funds to help pay off his mortgage. Bradley had come into a large sum of money. He made them a large gift. <clears throat> However, uh, the mortgage was not paid off until 2018, a fact that Bradley discovered in 2019. Bradley argued that by not using the gift to pay off the mortgage, and instead, as he alleged, using the money to make gifts to others and then using Ronald's own personal resources to pay off the mortgage, Pamela had depleted Ronald's estate and interfered with Bradley's own expectancy. 
The fraud and unjust enrichment claims were dismissed as time barred. Those claims have a three-year statute of limitations, which had expired. Bradley made the gift in 2012 and would have had time to review the public records to determine whether the mortgage had been paid off well before 2020. The tortious interference with an expectancy claim was also dismissed because Bradley did not have a legally protected interest in the trust. He was not a current beneficiary of the trust, only Pamela was, and he could only receive trust property after Pamela's death, assuming she exercised her power of appointment in his favor and not in favor of Ronald's other children. <clears throat> uh, the final case um, is Collado's Family Partnership versus Athena Capital Advisors. Um, and this is this is um, largely a procedural discussion and uh, a matter of uh, uh, corporate matters, but it does relate to uh, fiduciary duty, um, a breach of fiduciary duty question. So in 2007, the Collados Family Partnerships became a 1% member in Athena Capital Advisors. Over time, Collados expressed concerns that Athena concerns to Athena about the management and other membership issues, but Athena did not provide a satisfactory response. In 2020, Athena merged with a third party and noted Collado, and notified Collados CFB that it would be receiving its original investment back and no more. Athena provided CFP with releases to sign and CFP did not sign those releases. CFP requested additional information from Athena prior to the merger, but Athena did not provide that information until after the merger had been completed. CFP then requested additional information from Athena after the merger, but because it was no longer a member, that information was not provided. CFP sued Athena and its successor for breach of fiduciary duty, breach of contract, and the implied covenant of good faith and sought an equitable accounting. Most of the counts were dismissed for failure to state a claim and Athena moved for summary judgment on the remaining counts, breach of fiduciary, breach of contract, and equitable accounting. The motion was granted. <clears throat> uh, the appeals court affirmed the trials court's rulings in all respects. Most notably for this audience, the appeals court upheld the dismissal of a breach of, of the breach of fiduciary duty claim, which was based on Athena's failure to provide CFP with certain documents and information on the grounds that the count was based on the same set of facts as the count for bre breach of contract. Applying Delaware law, the court stated that if a dispute involves obligations set forth in a contract, it will be treated as a breach of contract claim. The claim of breach of fiduciary duty is subsumed into the breach of contract claim and dismissal is the appropriate remedy. All right, so that's all we have for you. Hi. I'm Heather Harris. I'm from Day Pitney, and we are going to walk through some of the tax updates. We picked out a few of the more interesting cases. Um, the first one relates to the estate tax, um, and it's about a well-to-do lawyer who had been married several times and made significant gifts during his lifetime to a daughter, a stepdaughter, and several women um, that he was connected to socially or romantically. Um, the IRS challenged three different aspects of his estate tax return. The first challenge was to these gifts. Uh, the estate argued that the gifts were for care and companionship. Um, there had been no gift tax return filed to report the gifts. 
Um, the second part of the estate tax return that was challenged relates to um, payments to his stepchildren. So prior to the decedent's fourth and final marriage, he entered into a premarital agreement with his spouse. Part of the agreement said that his wife could reside in his home for up to five years following his death. And it also required that he pay each of his stepchildren a million dollars at his death. The decedent never updated his estate plan to um, factor in this. And following his death, his wife and stepchildren filed claims to enforce the premarital agreement and they prevailed. The estate on the estate tax return claims the payments of the stepchildren as deductions on the estate tax return. And thirdly, on the estate tax return, there were deductions related to emergency repairs made on the decedent's house in Aspen, um, as well as payments for its continued maintenance. These were claimed as expenses of administration, which the IRS challenged. In looking at each of these three, uh, for the first one relating to the gifts that or arguable gifts that he made during his lifetime, the tax court agreed with the IRS that these were gifts. Um, the estate carried the burden of proving that the payments did not rise to the level of a gift. The court noted that the decedent had made no indication that they were meant for compensation. He did not file or issue any forms 1099 or W-2. He did not report the payments on his personal income tax returns. And testimony presented by the estate failed to show that they, these were anything other than gifts to friends and family. The second um, piece of this was the deductions related to the million dollar payments to his stepchildren. The court found that there were uh, there was nothing to indicate that uh, these were a bona fide contract with adequate and full consideration in money or money's worth. Interestingly, um, the fact that the decedent's wife waived her inheritance rights in exchange for these million-dollar bequests were not sufficient. Um, under 2043, it provides that some things do not constitute consideration, and one of those things is the waiver of marital rights. Uh, therefore, those deductions were not permitted. And thirdly, related to the Aspen House, um, the estate bared the burden of showing um, that these were due, that they were necessary rather than improvements on the property. And they did not present any uh, corroborating evidence to this effect. So the uh, lifetime distributions were found to be gifts and the deductions were not permitted. Uh, if we skip over to gift tax, um, there's an interesting case related to the value of a gift. Um, in this case, the court was looking deep at expert credentials uh, in valuing a gift, which is the, um, the takeaway from the case. The taxpayers were a married couple and they owned a majority of class A and class B common stock of a privately owned company, which was the Biltmore Company. Uh, that company was established by the Vanderbilts the primary business was maintaining the Biltmore House, the famous American landmark. In November of 2010, the husband transferred his interest in his stock to grandchildren and the wife transferred a portion of hers to their children. They reported the gifts on gift tax returns and the aggregate gift was 20,900,000. The IRS disagreed with the value and issued a notice of around 13 million. The taxpayers petitioned asking for a redetermination of the value. The taxpayers presented two experts and the IRS presented one expert. 
Um, the taxpayers experts used the income approach to capitalize the company's income and discount cash flows and the market approach to compare the company's value to other similarly situated companies. Both of those experts rejected using the asset approach, whereas the IRS's expert used the asset approach to value the company, um, They, which meant they valued all the company assets, including intangible assets like trademark, trademarks in the work and workforce. Um, the tax court agreed with the taxpayers, and it actually found that the value of the gift was lower than what they had reported on the gift tax return itself, and, and so they received a refund for the, uh, the gift tax paid. The tax court rejected the asset approach, noting that the company is an operating company rather than a holding company, and therefore earnings are the best way to measure value. Um, the asset approach it also found was inappropriate because the shareholders lacked control and the ability to force liquidation. They looked at the shareholder agreement, family his history, and testimony to determine that there was a low possibility of liquidation. Um, ultimately, the court found that the petitioner's experts were the most persuasive. And the again, the takeaway of this one was how deep of a dive the tax court did into the valuations, looking at the experts' credentials, the standards in the industry, the qualitative reasoning behind the valuation approaches, um, and really looking under the hood um, of how the values were, were arrived at. Uh, next, we have retirement benefits and a quick touch on Secure 2.0, which I think was likely discussed in the last overview, um, but with different dates, uh, some of the high points are that end of December of 2022, it, it passed. Um, it increases the required beginning date for qualified retirement plans from age 72 to age 73, beginning January 1st, 2023, and 75 starting January 1st, 2033. It increases the catch-up limit for defined contribution plans for individuals age 50 or older from 7,500 to the greater of 10,000 or 50% more than the regular catch-up amount for individuals who reach ages 60 through 63. It increases the qualified charitable distribution transfer to a remainder trust or other split interest gift for individuals who are 70 and a half or older from 100,000 annually to 100,000 indexed for inflation. Uh, but that age of 70 and a half remains the same. And finally, it allows beneficiaries of 529 plans to make trustee to trustee rollovers from a 529 account to their Roth IRA without incurring tax or penalty. There's quite a few restrictions in order to qualify. The account needs to have been opened for more than 15 years, the 529 account. The rollover cannot exceed the amount contributed to the account more than five years before the rollover. The aggregate rollovers cannot exceed 35,000 over the beneficiary's lifetime. And they're subject to Roth IRA annual contribution limits, but the limit is based, um, based on the beneficiary's AGI is waived. There are two cases related to um, charitable gifts. The first one relates to um, is Brooks v. Commissioner, and it looks at the takeaway for this one is the strict enforcement and interpretation of the substantiation requirements for charitable deductions. So in this case, a taxpayer's LLC granted a conservation easement to a charity. 
The terms of the conservation easement deed provided that the taxpayers conveyed and donated the easement as set forth herein, and all covenants, mutual agreements, conditions, and promises were contained within the easement deed. The LLC claimed a charitable deduction of 5.1 million on its form 1065. It attached a form 8283 with an appraisal to its 2007 return. The taxpayers claimed a deduction of about 750,000 on their form 1040X for the same tax year and carried forward the remaining 4.25 million uh, to future tax years. In 2015, the IRS issued a notice of deficiency for their individual income tax returns. They disallowed the carry forward deductions resulting from the charitable contribution and the IRS assessed a 40% accuracy related penalty uh, relating from the gross valuation misstatements. The taxpayer objected. Um, the court affirmed the disallowance of charitable contribution and the accuracy related penalties. The burden was on the taxpayer to, um, to rebut the presumption that the IRS was, is presumed correct. And the taxpayer bared the burden of um, proving that they are entitled to the charitable deduction. Under section 170, a charitable contribution over $250 must be substantiated by a contemporaneous written acknowledgement from the charitable organization. That acknowledgement must provide a description of the property contributed and whether the organization provided any goods or services in consideration for the contribution. In this case, we were looking to the easement deed to see um, what was in there and it did not satisfy the contemporaneous written acknowledgement requirement. It lacked an explicit statement describing whether the organization provide, provided goods or services in exchange for the contribution. And it did not contain explicit language stating it represented the whole of the agreement. Because the taxpayers did not require the substantiation requirements for a contribution over $250, as a matter of law, the entire deduction was disallowed. And because it was disallowed, the accuracy-related penalty was applicable and appropriate. Um, so again, it's important to strictly observe the formalities of substantiation for charitable deductions, um, especially with carry-forward years where there might be penalties um, with it. The second charitable case um, brings in cryptocurrency, which we might be seeing more of as time goes on. Um, in this case, the question relates to how you value cryptocurrency. So a taxpayer had purchased cryptocurrency for personal investment and then later transferred it all to a charity. The taxpayer claimed a charitable deduction of 10,000 on her income tax return for the year of the donation. She based that $10,000 value um, on the value of the cryptocurrency on the exchange on which it was traded. The taxpayer didn't obtain or didn't try to obtain a qualified appraisal for the donation, um, taking the position that it was not required because it had a read readily ascertainable value, which was the value published by the exchange. Um, the IRS had looked at two issues, whether the qualified appraisal was required and if it was, whether there was a reasonable cause exception to be made the IRS concluded that the qualified appraisal was required um, and that the reasonable cause exception did not excuse noncompliance with the requirement. Section 170 allows a deduction for property to a qualified charitable organization, but in general, for a contribution of 5,000 or more, the taxpayer must obtain a qualified appraisal of the donated property. 
There are times when a qualified appraisal is not required, um, including donations of certainly certain readily valued property as set forth in the code and underlying regulations, including cash, stock and trade, inventory, property primarily held for sale to customers in the ordinary course of business, publicly traded securities, intellectual property, and certain, certain vehicles. The underlying regulations define the term publicly traded securities to reference the definition in code 165G2. So then we look over there, which defines a security as a share of stock in a corporation, a right to subscribe for or to receive a share of stock in a corporation, a bond, debenture, note, or certificate, or other evidence of indebtedness issued by a corporation or a government or political subdivision thereof with interest coupons or in registered form. The IRS concluded that cryptocurrency did not fall within that definition and therefore did not satisfy the definition of a security. The IRS instead described cryptocurrency as a convertible virtual currency. By implication, though it was not set outright, the IRS does not um, conclude that cryptocurrency is an equivalent to cash. So therefore, the IRS analyzed whether the reasonable cause exception should apply. Um, this exception applies if the taxpayer exercised ordinary business care and the failure to strictly comply with the requirement was not due to willful neglect. In this case, uh, there were four references to appraisal, appraiser, appraised on Form 8283, which put the taxpayer on notice or should have put the taxpayer on sufficient notice of the requirement to seek an appraisal. Uh, and the taxpayer did not do so, did not attempt to do so. Um, therefore, the exception did not apply. The takeaway here is to be very careful, um, particularly with cryptocurrency and other non-cash contributions to be sure that um, to comply with, with all of the requirements of it and you know, how cryptocurrency will be viewed by the IRS. All right, um, looking at income tax separate from the charitable deduction, um, there's the case US versus Hovnanian. Um, out of New Jersey, where a taxpayer had a liability of um, unpaid income tax liability of more than $16 million. Shortly thereafter, his family transferred title in his family home to a trust, which we'll call Trust One. The taxpayer's children were the beneficiaries of the trust. The taxpayer created the trust. Um, the property was transferred in exchange for a dollar. And then title to a shopping mall, which the taxpayer controlled, was transferred to another trust, Trust Two, in exchange for $2. The government sought to attach federal tax liens and foreclose on the property to collect the tax liability that was outstanding. The government issued a notice of federal tax lien in the county in which the properties were located, and it listed the trust as nominees of the taxpayer. The government filed an action in district court seeking an order that if it had that it had valid federal tax liens and that it could foreclose on the liens against the property. The district court looked at six factors in determining whether the taxpayer exercises active or substantial control over the property. Um, these six factors were whether the nominee paid adequate consideration for the property, whether the property was placed in the nominee's name in anticipation of a suit or other liabilities, whether the taxpayer continued to control the property, the relationship between the taxpayer and the nominee, the failure to record the conveyance, whether the property remained in the taxpayer's possession and the taxpayer's continued enjoyment of the benefits of the property. 
The government argued that the taxpayer was the true owner of the property of Trust One, that was the home, uh, because he lived on the property, he paid its bills, and he otherwise made all decisions related to the property's use. The district court agreed and also noted that only $1 of consideration was paid for the property and that this was paid after the taxpayer was found liable of the $16 million of unpaid tax. The taxpayer retained possession. The taxpayer never paid rent to Trust One, um, and he, he um, retained all the benefits of owning the property. The district court was had a similar finding for Trust Two with a shopping mall. The taxpayer was a true beneficial owner of that shopping mall. Therefore, the court ordered under Section 7403 a for sale of the shopping mall to satisfy um, the liabilities. And this is just a reminder that creditors, including the government, will likely be able to enforce judgments under a nominee theory when debtors make transfers of property and trust with the knowledge of an outstanding claim, like was the case here. Um, and generally, if it seems too good to be true, it might be. The second income tax case, without going through too many of the facts, the reason why I kind of pulled this one out um, is it closes the door on a narrow argument that's been around since 2012 related to irrevocable grantor trusts. So in this case, this is Revenue Ruling 2023-02, a grantor created and funded an irrevocable trust. It was a completed gift, so it was outside of the grantor's estate. Uh, but it was a grantor trust for income tax purposes under 1014. Um, the ruling and analysis looked at whether um, the property in the trust would receive a step up at the grantor's death, and the answer is no. Um, there has been, since a PLR was issued in 2012, there's been a narrow argument that assets, assets received on account of a decedent's death, even if they're not included in their estate, for estate tax purposes could receive the step up. And this closes the door on that. The answer um, by the IRS is no. All right, um, jumping over to compliance and FBAR. There is a case Bittner versus the United States. Here, the petitioner is a U.S.-Romanian dual citizen. He filed FBAR for tax years 2007 to 2011. On the FBARs, the petitioner never reported 272 accounts. Uh, the petitioner later filed corrected FBARs. The government imposed penalties, non-willful penalties in the amount of $2.72 million, which was $10,000 per account that was not reported. The petitioner challenged the penalties um, in the U.S. District Court, saying that the penalties should apply per report and not per account. That would reduce the penalties to $50,000 from $2,720,000. The U.S. District Court agreed. The Fifth, Cir Fifth Circuit overruled it. And then the U.S. Supreme Court reversed the Fifth Circuit's decision saying that the $10,000 penalty applied on a per report basis and not a per account basis. The court in looking at this discussed the Bank Secrecy Act, section 5314 deals with US taxpayers disclosure obligations. 
The relevant language requires that U.S. taxpayers file reports with the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network that contain the identity and address of the participants in a transaction or relationship, the legal capacity in which a participant is acting, the identity of real parties and interest, along with the description of the transaction. Violation of 5314 can be triggered by a single error on a single report or multiple errors on a single report. And a violation is in essence based on the taxpayer not filing reports consistent with the BSA's commands. The court then looked at section 5321 of the BSA, which imposes penalties in connection with the filing obligations. 5321 imposes a $10,000 penalty for any non-willful violation of 5314. Uh, because it approaches it as the failure to file a report consistent with the statute's commands, the penalty is based on the entire report and not for error. The court also mentioned that in 2010, there was a notice from the Department of Treasury stating a person who is required to file an FBAR and fails to properly file may be subject to a civil penalty not to exceed $10,000. This is a big victory for US taxpayers. Um, it puts a cap on the penalties, bringing a penalty of almost 3 million down to 50,000. So it's, it's a really, this one's a big deal. Um, however, the IRS has not provided any written guidance with respect to taxpayers who previously paid higher penalties, a per account penalty uh, versus the per report penalty. And it hasn't, the IRS has not discussed any available options for collecting on any overpayments. And then finally, we were going to talk about the IRS Revenue Procedure 2023-3, um, where it updates its, um, the IRS's list of certain topics it will not address in private letter rulings. Um, the ones that are notable for us relate to grantor trusts. So the IRS will not rule on whether a grantor owns a trust when the trust property consists of insurance on the grantor or the grantor's spouse's life. The trustee or anyone else can apply income or principal to pay premiums on such policies. The trustee can make loans to the grantor's estate or buy assets from the estate. And any person has a right or power that could result in the grantor being treated as the owner of a portion or all of the trust. The IRS is not going to rule on the tax consequences of terminating a CREP before the end of its term through a transaction in which the beneficiaries receive their actuarial shares of the value of the trust assets. Um, the IRS is also not going to rule on whether such an event will be treated as a sale or disposition by the beneficiaries of their interest in the trust. Looking at private foundations, the IRS is not going to rule on self-dealing and private foundations. Specifically, the IRS noted that it will not rule on self-dealing when it arises in a situation where a private foundation owns or receives an interest in an entity that owns a promissory note issued by a disqualified person. With the multiple trust rule, the IRS will not rule prospectively on whether two or more trusts will be treated as one trust for income tax purposes. Uh, charitable deductions for gifts of partnership interest, the IRS is not going to rule prospectively on whether a charitable contribution deduction will be allowed for income or estate tax purposes for the transfer of an interest in a limited partnership or limited liability company taxed as a 
partnership to a charitable organization. Um, one that stuck out to me was uh, decanting for NGST consequences. The IRS is not going to rule on whether a trust that is exempt from the GST tax will retain its exempt status following a modifi modification of the trust, a change in the administration of the trust, or the distribution of the assets from one irrevocable trust to another. And finally, the IRS, um, the revenue ruling included a broad declaration that the IRS will not rule on certain tax consequences of donor advised fund distributions, specifically the interpretation of code section 4966, which is taxes on taxable distributions and 4967 taxes on prohibitive benefits. That's what I have, I'm a little early, so I don't know if anyone has questions or we can turn it over to Josh. All right, thanks very much, Heather, that was great. <clears throat> um, so I am Josh Caswell, I'm at Choate Hall and Stewart, and I am a co-chair of the Public Policy Committee for the, the Steering Committee. Um, our job is to sort of monitor legislation and, and keep the Steering Committee updated on what's coming down the pike. Um, <clears throat> this is the sort of the start of a new legislative cycle in Massachusetts. Um, for those who tuned in at, to the mid-year review, um, I spoke last time a little bit about the the sort of legislative cycle. Um, it runs in Massachusetts on a two-year cycle, so we're at the beginning of a new two-year cycle. Um, and if you're interested in the, the how the legislative cycle works and when things get done and how uh, legislation gets passed, um, you can check out the, the recording from the mid-year review. Um, for this for this presentation, I think the most exciting topic um, and the most interesting topic for, I think, just about everyone listening in um, is estate tax reform. Um, many folks may recall that at the end of his term, Governor Baker um, was pretty enthusiastic about um, getting some sort of tax reform passed um, because finances in Massachusetts had been great. And I think uh, folks will recall that last year, several people actually got money back after they had paid their taxes because the the state had a, a surplus that was big enough to warrant that. Um, the, the bill that Governor Baker proposed uh, in January of last year um, had a, it was a comprehensive tax reform bill that included some estate tax reform. Um, the two main sort of components of the bill that dealt with, uh, or the proposal rather, that dealt with um, the estate tax um, the two main changes were that the, the, the proposal would have doubled the exemption amount from a million dollars to $2 million. Um, and it would have done away with the cliff effect of the Massachusetts estate tax. Um, and just to quickly explain what I mean by that, um, if a person's estate goes over a million dollars by even $1, um, then you end up paying tax on the full million dollars. You don't pay tax simply on the $1. And that's sort of the, the cliff effect. I'm going to use that term uh, a few more times in the presentation. So just want to make sure we're all on the same page on that. Uh, Governor Baker's proposal um, seemingly had some serious momentum to it uh, in the beginning of 2022, which would have been the end of the, the last legislative cycle. Uh, but for whatever reason, when the, the proposal was referred out to the committees, um, the momentum sort of fizzled. And, and in July of 22, um, we were left with, with no changes. 
Um, so now we flash forward to this year when we have a new governor, um, Governor Healy, and she has expressed, uh, similar to Governor Baker, a commitment to uh, to getting some sort of tax reform package passed. Um, I think if you look at the materials that the the public policy committee prepared, you'll see that there are uh, a pretty uh, high number of bills relating to the estate tax. And I suspect that that's due to the fact that that there is some sort of commitment to getting something done. Um, you know, it, again, if you look through the materials, you'll see that there were um, nine additional bills filed this year, in, in addition to those that are sort of filed and refiled on a, an annual basis. Um, so people are aware of the fact that estate tax or, or tax reform rather is uh, is sort of a, a big priority and, and I think are trying to make their voices heard on the estate tax reform component. Um, that said, of the several bills that were filed, uh, there are three that are, uh, we think, sort of the most important. Um, and those are the three that are highlighted in orange in the materials. Um, one is Governor Healy's proposal. Um, one is the House Ways and Means Committee's bill. And the third is the Senate Ways and Means Committee uh, Committee's proposal. And so, um, so those three are sort of the most likely to um, have an impact or sort of dictate where the state goes in terms of tax reform. Um, real quickly, the governor's bill is very, very similar, or the governor's proposal, I shouldn't say bill, the governor's proposal is very similar to, um, to the proposal from Governor Baker. Um, it would increase the exemption amount. Uh, this time, the increase would be to $3 million, um, as opposed to the $2 million that Governor Baker proposed. It would, uh, similarly, it would eliminate the cliff effect. Um, so that we would have sort of a true $3 million exemption. And, and to the extent that an estate was over the exemption, um, you'd only pay tax on the excess, not the, the full sort of run up. Um, and lastly, it would pro provide a reduction in the tax um, for residents of Massachusetts uh, who own property out of state. It would provide a propor proportionate reduction on the tax equal to the, the portion of their property that's outside of Massachusetts. Um, right now, you just sort of get a credit for tax that's paid to other states, um, subject to the the Desori hearing, uh, the Desori case rather, where um, it was sort of decided that um, that taxing property in other jurisdictions may or may not be constitutional, and and um, and I think different firms handle that differently. But uh, but the way that the the statute is written, you only get a credit for tax that you pay to other states. Um, so the the governor's proposal, similar to Governor Baker's proposal, would um, would proportionally reduce the tax based on out-of-state property. Sort of similar to the way that um, non-residents are taxed on their property in the state. They pay a, a portion of the tax based on the portion of their gross estate that's located within Massachusetts. Um, for those who don't subscribe to the the BBA's Trust and Estates blog, uh, you should. But there's a there's a really good article on there by Paul Cathcart. Um, he sort of went through the bill or the proposal rather in great detail and, and has a, a lot of great examples about the impact it may have on residents and non-residents. Um, definitely worth a read and and definitely subscribe to that. Um, the governor's proposal would be, if enacted, would be effective for decedents after January 1st um, of 2023. And so that 
is sort of in short the governor's proposal. Um, the Senate bill is very, very, very similar. If you look at the language of the the proposed amendments, they're essentially identical. The slight differences are in numbers. Um, again, the Senate bill eliminates the cliff effect. Um, it provides a proportionate reduction uh, of the tax of the estate tax based on non-Massachusetts property for resident decedents. Um, the the one key difference with the Senate proposal is that the exemption would be two million dollars as opposed to three. Um, so sort of mirroring what Governor Baker proposed. Um, and that that bill or that proposal is is um, drafted to be effective as of July 1st of this year. Um, so it would apply to, to decedents who die after July 1st, 2023. Um, the final bill is the House bill. Um, that one is sort of the, the one that's a bit of an outlier. It's structured a bit differently than the other bills. Um, in the two other bills, if you look at the actual language, um, they provide a credit against the tax that would otherwise have been due um, in the in an amount that's that if you calculate it out is equal to the state death tax credit for three million dollars or two million dollars respectively. Um, the the house bill is a is a bit different. It says essentially that before calculating the tax, you reduce the value of the gross estate by two million dollars and then sort of run through the numbers as you normally would. Um, I, I haven't, <laughs> candidly, I haven't run all the permutations of that. So I don't know, um, I don't know if there would be a material difference in, in tax based on the different approaches that the bills take. It seems to me, and you know, my opinion is, is worth two cents and, and uh, but it seems to me that, that given that there have been several bills that, um, use very, very similar language, and there's one that's sort of an outlier, it would seem to me that we'd want to pay closer attention to the the ones that are, the language that's been used multiple times and and uh, as, but again, who knows, who knows what can happen. Um, and so with respect to um, how those differences in the, the calculations could be or, or with respect to how those the difference in the calculations sort of uh, permutates itself, I think it's important to um, cover very, very generally how Massachusetts estate taxes are calculated. Um, it is, uh, and again, very, very general. It's not going to apply to, I'm not going to get in deductions and, and credits and that sort of thing, but um, very generally, the first step in the process mm -hmm is to calculate the state the state death tax credit that was in effect uh, for December 31st of 2000. Um, and so to do that, you start with the federal gross estate and take out any deductions. Um, from that amount, you subtract $60,000 to come up with the adjusted taxable, taxable estate. Um, and then you use the, the state death tax credit calculation grid. I think we've all seen those there. The, the ones that provide ranges of dollar amounts and then a, a flat tax rate plus the per percentage you pay over the, the lower number. <clears throat> Excuse me. So you use that sort of grid to calculate the tax. Um, you can find that on the Department of Revenue's website if you're interested in reviewing it. Um, and that's that's the state death tax credit. The second step in that is that you calculate the taxes using um, the table A, which is I think the formal name for 
the chart that I was referring to, um, from page 12 of the July 1999 Form 706 instructions. Um, if you have any difficulty finding those, again, you can get there through the Department of Revenue's website. Um, but you calculate the tax out using you know, the gross estate values and, and that chart uh, and come up with a tentative tax. And then the tax that actually gets paid is the smaller of those two calculations. So it's the lesser of the state death tax credit or um, the tax as of um, using the July 1999 tables. Um, and so, like I said, I, I haven't um, I haven't done examples where I uh, try to calculate different estate values using the two different approaches. My inclination would be that um, the language that's been repeated over and over again is more likely to be the language that gets used. Um, but who knows what happens in conference committee. Um, so where we stand with these bills is that the House has passed its bill. Um, the Senate is scheduled to debate its bill on Thursday. Um, I think the expectation is that that will pass without too much, um, without too much drama and, and without too many changes. Um, assuming that's the case, uh, the, the two chambers, so the House and the Senate will set up a conference committee um, and that committee will be tasked with um, sort of coming up with a compromise between the two bills to, um, to sort of resolve the differences and come up with a, a joint proposal. And then from there, that bill will have a, a hearing, uh, a second hearing, and then a third calling. And then eventually, hopefully, that will get passed. Um, I think the the expectation, and this is coming from the the uh, Boston Bar Association sort of man on the man on the hill, Mike Avitzer, who's uh, who's I think on this call. Uh, but I think the expectation is uh, that something hopefully will happen by the end of July. That's sort of the end of of this session. Um, and so it seems again, like it did in, in January of 2022, that, um, a state tax reform, uh, that tax reform rather and that a state tax reform in general, um, is sort of a, a, a top priority for, um, this legislative session. And so hopefully we get something that, that bumps up the exemption a bit, um, because I think most folks know we have the the lowest exemption in the country. So uh, anything that can uh, alleviate some of the estate tax would be great. Um, with respect to some of the other things that have been filed, where where some of the other sort of bills and acts are, uh, and I'm going to talk about those momentarily, but with respect to where those stand, um, you know, not much other than the tax reform proposals has really been uh, discussed. Um, several of the bills that we normally follow, the BBA normally follows, um, haven't been refiled. And, and in the materials, I included 2021-22 uh, bill numbers and 23-24 bill numbers. So you can see if, if something has been refiled um, and see what changes, if anything, there have been. Um, but, but several of the bills that we normal, normally track have not been refiled. Um, it seems... It seems like a state tax reform is, a, or tax reform generally, and a state tax reform is the top priority. Um, and so, you know, fingers crossed for some action. Um, with respect to some of the other bills that we've been tracking that have been refiled, um, I'd like to talk a bit about the digital assets proposals. Um, and, and some of this is repetitive because. <laughs> For whatever reason, some of these bills, which uh, you know all of us seem to agree are good and, and would be helpful, 
um, don't move and don't get past and get refiled year after year in the hopes that, um, you know, some fresh blood or fresh faces in on the Hill will, um, will move things along. Um, so with respect to digital assets, there have been, I think for, uh, as long as I've been on the public policy committee, there have been the same two bills that get refiled year after year. Um, one is, uh, supported by the Jamian family from that, that uh, sort of well-known Yahoo case where they uh, fought to get access to their deceased brother's email. Um, that bill is incredibly limited in its application. Um, they obviously have some pretty strong feelings about uh, access to a decedent's emails, and, and that bill is really sort of limited to personal representatives getting access to a decedent's emails. Um, the, the other bill and the one that the Boston Bar Association supports is um, the revised Uniform Fiduciary Access to Digital Assets Act, um, commonly known as RUFADA. RUFADA is, uh, it governs access to a person's online accounts when the account owner dies or loses the ability to manage the account. So unlike the, the sort of a Javian family bill, it applies both during life in the event of incapacity um, and once a person has passed. Um, it's also broader in its in its application than the the Ajamian family bill in that it includes um, all types of um, all types of fiduciary. So it's not just limited to personal representatives. It includes um, trustees, conservators, agents acting under a power of attorney. Um, it's also broader in that it includes a broader um, definition or or broader class of what counts as a digital asset. Um, it allows fiduciaries to manage digital property like computer files, web domains, virtual currency, uh, Bitcoin, crypto, that sort of stuff, uh, but re restricts a fiduciary's access to electronic communications such as email, text, and social media accounts uh, unless the original user consented to fiduciary access, fiduciary access in a will, trust, power of attorney, or other sort of documents. Some of those um, services have online tools where the, the user can consent. Um, and so there's uh, there's a there are competing bills and, and I testified at the last hearing on on Rufada and it was pretty clear that that some of the legislatures legislators don't quite understand um, you know exactly that there are digital assets that that are broader than just email accounts um, and, or Facebook accounts that that some of these things have real financial value. Um, and so I think anything that that we can do as a group to kind of move the ball forward and, and make it known that that digital assets are broader than just emails or um, bank statements or Facebook accounts would be helpful in in uh, in getting something passed. Um, I think the fact that there are two competing bills also sort of makes things a bit more difficult because the legislators aren't digital asset experts, so it's hard to know which is better. Um, I would say, you know, Rufada has been enacted in I think something like 47 states. Um, so we're a little bit behind the eight ball and getting something passed. Um, but in the last in the last legislative cycle, um, both bills were held for study um, and both were effectively killed. Um, quick, quick tangent, um, if anybody has the chance to testify um, on any of, at any of these hearings on any of these bills, I thought it was a wonderful experience, and it's it's really interesting to see, um, 
you know, who speaks up and and the questions that are asked and and get a sense of why some of these seemingly sort of common sense bills aren't aren't going anywhere. <clears throat> uh, but uh, you know, hopefully this legislative cycle will get something pushed through. Um, the next bill that I wanted to talk about relates to caregiver affidavits. Um, so chapter 201F of the general laws allows a parent or legal guardian to designate a caregiver for a minor child for a limited period of up to two years. Um, under the, the current statute, the minor child has to reside with the uh, designated caregiver. The, the proposal would effectively strike the requirement that the caregiver has to live with the minor, um, which would seemingly make it more useful if, um, you know, it, make it more useful. Um, the odds that that a, a, care, a designated caregiver lives with the child seem, uh, with a minor seem, you know, a little bit of a long shot. But um, the proposal would also allow for the appointment of an uh, alternate caregivers, much like a power of attorney. So if the designated caregiver can't or is unable to serve for any reason, um, you could name a backup similar to sort of like a power of attorney or healthcare proxy. Um, under the current law, a caregiver can consent to medical, surgical, dental, developmental, mental health, or other treatments on behalf of a minor. They can exercise parental rights to obtain records or other information with regard to healthcare services provided to a minor. They can make educational decisions on behalf of the minor and in all other ways stand in for the authorizing party with respect to federal, state, and district education policy. Um, the proposal would allow, in addition to those things, it would allow a, a designated caregiver to make decisions on behalf of a minor regarding recreational and enrichment activities, um, you know, things like signing permission slips for field trips, sports, um, clubs, lessons, camps, that sort of thing. Um, and it also would allow the caregiver to apply for health insurance and dental insurance coverage, um, seek support for uh, disabilities, uh, so seek support services for disabilities. Um, so it makes the, the current statue a bit more, I think, sort of user-friendly. Um, you know, just sort of thinking through the the practical application of this. One thing that that jumps to my mind is if um, parents are going on vacation without a minor child and want to designate a caregiver for that child, um, odds are that the the person they're designating doesn't live with the minor, and so this sort of makes that a bit more practical, um, and also um, you know gives the the designated caregiver a bit more um, flexibility in what they can and can't do. Um, in the last legislative cycle, the bill, this proposal, which has just been refiled, um, got favorable, favorable reports from the House Judiciary Committee um, and was seemingly on its way to enactment, but for whatever reason, didn't get passed. And I, I don't know what the reason is, but um, it's a seemingly a useful bill that um, sort of, like I said, adds a bit of flexibility to a statute that already exists. Um there's also a proposal that would allow um, disabled seniors over age 65 to transfer assets to a first party pooled special needs trust um, without triggering a period of ineligibility. <clears throat> Under the current law, that's considered a, a disqualifying transfer and would result in some period of ineligibility for long-term care uh, through Medicaid. Um, Again, I'm, I'm not a, a Medicaid expert, but it seems like a pretty reasonable proposal that if somebody becomes disabled, that 
uh, over the age of 65, they should be able to um, arrange their assets in a way that would qualify them for long-term care. Um, this bill was, uh, this is a, a reproposed bill that died in the Ways and Means Committee in the last cycle. Um, I don't know, I suspect it has some, some cost associated with it, and I don't know what that cost is, but that might be um, what's sort of holding that up. And then the um, the last bill uh, that, or the last proposal I think that's useful to talk about is the Uniform Decanting Act. Um, decanting, as we all know, exists in Massachusetts pursuant to the, the Kraft case. Um, but all the Kraft case really said is that um, that decanting exists in Massachusetts. There's no sort of guidelines on what can and can't be done. There's no um, sort of roadmap on how um, how a decanting is done. I, I suspect most people on this presentation or listening to this presentation have done a decanting. Um, and so you know, there's, there's just not really any certainty as to what needs to be done in Massachusetts to make a decanting happen. Um, the the act would uh, would provide a bit more certainty. It, it sort of walks through um, the changes that can and cannot be made under certain circumstances. Um, it talks about what documents are required to effectuate a decanting. It, it sort of covers what um, what's required in terms of notice. So it, it makes the process much more clearer and it makes what can and can't be done much clearer. Um, the the proposal, the the bill to enact the Uniform Decanting Act is, um, I think, pretty widely supported by all of the legal associations, by the banking association. Um, I think that there is an awful lot of support for this bill, and and for whatever reason, um, it hasn't passed. Um, one thing that the bill does make clear is that um, there is a difference between a fiduciary who has um, a limited standard of discretion, so subject to health, education, maintenance, or support standards, and a, a fiduciary that has full discretion. Um, under the Act, uh, uh, a, a trustee who has um, limited discretion can only decant to make administrative changes or make the, the document, the trust, comply with tax changes. Um, and if the trustee has full discretion, um, then they can do those things as well as change beneficial interests. Um, and under either set of facts, whether the trustee has limited discretion or full discretion, um, the trustee has the ability to um, decant to turn an interest in a trust into something that would qualify as a, a supplemental or special needs trust um, so that the beneficiary does not lose or become ineligible for uh, Medicaid benefits. Um, so it's a useful statute. It, it um, it would certainly add a bit of clarity to what can and can't be done in Massachusetts, um, whether that's beneficial or um, whether folks like the the sort of wild wild west approach where you can uh, you know use your judgment to decide whether something is possible through decanting is um, is up for debate. Again, this is another one of those bills similar similar to the digital assets bill uh, bills that gets refiled on an annual or biannual basis and and just doesn't seem like it's ever going to pass. I I don't know why. I'm not sure what the reasoning is, but it uh, it gets held up year after year. Um, and so we'll see what happens this year. Um, that is all that I had in terms of uh, public policy comments. 
Um, so I'll pause and, and ask if anyone has any questions. I do not see any. And so with that, I'll, I'll turn it over to uh, Carrie and thank you all very much. Thanks very much, Josh. It looks like there are no further questions. So I would just like to thank everyone who attended this program today. And again, thanks to our speakers and committees who work so hard to put together all of the materials for, for this program. All of the registrants should have received a copy of the materials for today's program. If you did not, please reach out to the BBA. And with that, I hope that this program was helpful to everyone out there watching and enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you. I also just want to jump on and say thank you so much to our panelists and thank you so much to our audience. Have a great day, everybody.